Hi, I'm Liz Winstead. I'm Mojiella Wodeal. And we're the hosts of Feminist Buzzkills, the only weekly podcast that helps you navigate the post-row hellscape. We dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with our guests, the abortion providers and activists working on the ground. Plus, we have amazing comedians to help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzzkills drops Fridays wherever you get your pod fix. Listen and subscribe, because when BS is popping, we pop off. Call the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. It's a serious question. I, I appreciate your passion. I share it. I've addressed this question. I've addressed my personal feelings. And I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. You're listening to Just Ask the Question, Adventures in Reporting with your host, Brian Karam. Hi, welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I'm your host, Brian Karam, and with us today to talk about the week's Good Lord. Yeah, it's, it's exhausting. What happened all this week in the news? Our, our usual band of miscreants, uh, John Bennett from editor-at-large and columnist at Roll Call, Michael Zeldin, um, who is a former federal prosecutor. You can see him on uh, the many shows on cable. And, of course, he is the host of That Said with Michael Zeldin. And it's a great podcast if you ever want to find out about books and written materials. That's the place to go. So today we're going to start, we're going to go right to it. Uh, guys, Thursday night's primetime season-ending finale of the, uh, of, the, uh, <clears throat> of the January 6th hearing. And, um, Michael, I'll, I'll start with you. What, out of all these eight, do you think it was effective? Is there any case to be made against Donald Trump? Will they file against him, or is it we're going to see another season before we know that? Well... <laughs> We'll see another season because is the justice that files charges, not Congress. So what Congress is doing is not really relevant to criminal charges. What they are doing is presenting a picture to the American public that is political. But from that, and I'll let John speak to the politics of it, but from that, you can determine as a prosecutor whether or not you think if the evidence in its totality um, equals that which we've seen in summary, because that's what we're getting. Right. Uh, then I thought that the evidence presented on day eight presents a viable case for the charge of criminal incitement. Incitement is a charge different than sedition and not necessarily exclusive of other charges, but incitement is a charge in the D.C. Criminal Code and in the U.S. Federal Code, which is said, essentially says, if you incite people to riot, then you can be charged with incitement. And there are First Amendment overlays to it, meaning you are allowed as a politician or any uh, citizen to have fiery speech and have your First Amendment rights protected. But to be charged with incitement requires you to say, essentially, to a crowd, go get them meaning he, firemen are bad people. They never put out fires. Look, there is a fireman, go get him. And the crowd goes and attacks the fireman. Here, what struck me about week eight was there was a mob 
that was assembled um, by Trump. Trump knew the mob was armed and angry. He knew that his sort of whole structure was based on Pence failing to certify. When Pence refused to fail to certify, and therefore the whole plan that Trump had been working on was going to collapse, Trump then sends out this 2.24 p.m. tweet, which says, essentially, go get him. Pence let us down. Go get him. And I think that overcomes any First Amendment wow. um, claims and meets the four corners of the uh, incitement statute. So for me, from a pure a legal analyst standpoint, I thought week eight was the first time that they made a truly viable charge beyond the, what we've heard about previously, which is the defrauding the United States to obstruct the official proceeding stuff. So anyway, that's that was my legal takeaway. And and your takeaway, John, from day from the, the season ending finale in prime time. As far as season finales go, I thought it was, you know, exactly what what the committee would want from a season finale. Um, they did uh, draw some lines directly to Donald Trump. Um, we knew we know a little bit more about what he was and was not doing in the dining room off the Oval Office. And important to note about the dining room off the Oval Office, you know, that's not somewhere uh, that a lot of aides are ever given access to, no matter who the president is. So, uh, you know, Trump was smart enough, or smart enough or shrewd enough. That's that's what I how I always describe Trump uh, when I was covering the White, his White House. Um, he's very shrewd. So he knew to go to the dining room. Number one, there's a giant television across that he had installed <laughs> over the dining table. There, you know, <laughs> um, his happy place was always watching tele, uh, watching cable news. So. He was smart enough to go in there. It limited access. It limited the logs, uh, the the visitor logs. It limited the what's the president doing right now uh, logs. So he goes in there. Um, but, you know, that two, uh, what, 224 tweet, 234 tweet, you know, that seems to be very problematic for him. And politically, um, you know, Adam Kinzinger this morning was on uh, the Sunday shows. And, um, you know, he's saying that, you know, his read of this is this will end up politically disqualifying Trump uh, in 2024 if he does choose to run again. I'm not so sure about that. Um, but, you know, we are seeing polling where Ron DeSantis leads Trump in several states, including Florida, including Michigan, including New Hampshire. So, you know, he is he's weakened for some reason. We don't necessarily know that it's directly because of these hearings, but. You know, I, I don't know if I believe in conspiracy or um, a coincidence is quite that much. So I do think this is having a small effect with Republican voters. But again, it's not a huge effect, like we've said the last few weeks here. So I think this, it just makes DeSantis more and more competitive against Trump. Well, that <clears throat> scary thought in and of itself. I, I'll take away from one thing that uh, former uh, Senator Al Franken said is the, the only thing more dangerous than prosecuting Trump is not prosecuting him. I think he set himself up for this country. I think some form or fashion, there will have to be people. And I think the case has been made. I do believe the case has been made against uh, 
or, or enough of a case has been made that the Justice Department should be able to follow it righteously enough to get an indictment uh, against many of the people in his camp, in his inner circle, including, you know, Eastman, uh, Giuliani, uh, uh, maybe Sidney Powell. And, uh, and I think Bannon going down and being found guilty is an indication, is a vindication for January 6th. And I think will uh, ultimately help the prosecution of anybody else through the Justice Department. But I'll, I'll say this, with, um, with all that went on on, on, on the primetime special, I think the, the, the single most viral moment was watching Josh Hawley pull, uh, you know, <laughs> Sir Robin the Brave out of, out of his arrow of quivers and running as fast as he could, uh, where moments before he had been seen fist pounding. And as they pointed out, safely behind a police line when it happened, I think I, 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 know, I would have loved to have been in the committee room when they were going, uh, yeah, uh, we, we'll keep that video in. I just think at some point in time, somebody did that just for spite's sake. But that's me. <laughs> did you see? Did you see? I, I saw on the internet the various iterations of of that, and the one that made me smile the most was him running across with the chariots of fire music <laughs> playing in the background. I missed that one. The thing that came to me was Sir Robin the Brave. When yeah. danger uh, reared its uh, ugly head, Sir Robin turned his tail and fled. And that was all I could think about was just Josh just booking it out of there. Like you said, John, he looked like Wiley Coyote running away from, running after the Roadrunner. Yeah, I kept waiting for the Roadrunner to uh, make an appearance. Uh, but one more thing about the politics. This morning, um, I believe it was Jake Tapper asked Liz Cheney if she's ruled out a presidential bid in 2024, you know, I don't think she could win any statewide office, much less uh, in a very red district that she's up for a reelection this year for the House. So, you know, she's one of those people who might have a better chance nationally than in her own home state. And that's an interesting idea to, to project, to inject into the to the Republican primary with, um, you know, if Trump and DeSantis splinter um, a big part of the vote and and let's say that's 45% and they they split it, uh, there's really no one else in that other camp, that more establishment, more traditional camp. But let's face it, Mike Pence is not going to be the nominee. So I'm not saying that Cheney could win the nomination, but I think she could she could definitely make it more interesting. And, you know, she's going to be the one uh, continuously reminding um more moderate Republicans or independents that might have a shot at, at voting in a Republican primary Democrat. about January 6th and about what Trump did and didn't do. So she, she could shake up the race. I think that um, it's, you know, I was in a couple of uh, congressional offices Friday, and I'll tell you that <clears throat> there are those on the Democratic side of the aisle who believe that that would be a very formidable uh, ticket, Kinsinger and and Cheney, Cheney at the top of the ticket, that they would have trouble beating that, uh, particularly if uh, if Biden decides not to run. So I, I the problem is, could she get out of the primaries to challenge right. them? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, while she has great crossover appeal, you know, look, 
and make no mistake of it, I don't consider what she did heroic. I mean, her her politics are anathema to many people. She was on board for most of what Trump did, misogynistically, racially, all of it. But Drew, you know, she she did stick to the God bless her. She, you know, and aim into that. She stuck to the Constitution at, at when it was, you know, she put country over party. And for that alone, I think she will um, <clears throat> she will garner a lot of people to vote for her that normally wouldn't. But I don't think she can get out of any primaries to get the uh, Republican. Yeah. The, the ironic thing there is, is Trump and DeSantis and whoever else, they'll paint her as a rhino. But according to uh, uh, pardon the plug here, according to a CQ roll call analysis, she votes with Republican leadership 89 percent of the time. She voted with Trump. I think it was in the low 90s when he was president. So, you know, she's not some moderate Republican. No, she's not a very that. conservative person. She, she is her. Um, she's her father's daughter. There's no question about it. And she'd be the last person Donald Trump would want to have come after him, I would think. But that's. But right. how does that translate, Michael? Does that, I mean, we're talking about, you know, you said at the top, it's, you know, this is for the politics. But does this in any way, there are people who still doubt that um, Merrick Garland will have, will do anything or that the Justice Department would do anything regarding what's going on on January 6th. You think that's true or you think that we're, we're we haven't seen the tip of the iceberg even yet? I believe that if Merrick Garland sees law and facts that merit an indictment that he thinks he could convince a jury beyond a reasonable doubt and sustain on appeal, he will pursue it irrespective of the politics of it. The fact that Trump may announce soon that he is running for re-election will have no impact on uh, Merrick Garland's decision-making. I think Merrick is going about his business in a very methodical way. In the same way we saw him in the oversight of the Oklahoma City bombing prosecutions. He's a very sort of by the book, step by step, high up all loose ends person. He's not a shoot from the hip person who is going to risk losing a case at trial or on appeal. And so I think the people who are criticizing Merrick are doing it without regard to how hard it is to prove a case against anybody in federal court uh, under circumstances like this, no less a uh, former president and uh, his attorneys. So you believe at the end of the day, and you would know better than, than any of us, what we've seen, would it lend you <clears throat> or lend credence to the thought that indeed there is a they are pursuing criminal charges against someone. Well, they have a grand jury investigation open. That usually implies that, that they're looking at criminal conduct by a select group of people. I expect that the most obvious uh, investigatory step would be to determine whether or not there was a group of people who conspired to defraud the United States by interfering with the transition of power, the obstructing um, Congress. That's a pretty straightforward investigation. I'm not saying it's an easy charge to bring or an easy trial to win, but on the facts of what we've seen, this Green Bay sweep and the false electors scheme and the pressure on 
state legislators and the pressure on Pence and the big lie, all of that is very easily subject to investigation on the charges of obstruction of a congressional proceeding and interfering um, with the United States government's right to, to have its business not defrauded. The, the, the hard part, the hardest part for me is getting to a seditious conspiracy, which is a effort to overturn the government by, by force. I don't think the evidence is there yet. I think that, it, and it may never be there. I, I think that the only way they get there, which is a, a tying up more tightly the relationship between Trump and the, the Proud Boy instigators of the, and, and Oath Keepers instigators of the event, would be through Bannon, Stone, and Mark Matthews. I think those are the guys that can make that connection. And I don't see that they're likely to speak at this moment in time. Do you think that <clears throat> Bannon's conviction for, uh, uh, you know, avoiding the subpoena for uh, is is good for uh, the DOJ's prosecution or, or attempted case or or good politically? Is uh, he's he's vowed that he supports Trump and the Constitution? I don't see how that's possible. But um, <laughs> you know, do, do you think that Bannon's conviction being found guilty earlier this week uh, is an indicator that? perhaps uh, things will shake out better in court than in the court of public opinion. Well, know that in October when the judge sentences him. If the judge sentences him to the maximum, two years uh, in, in prison, each, each of those counts that he was convicted of carries a mandatory minimum of 30 days in jail and a maximum of one year. A court can run those two cases concurrent, meaning that if you, you, you serve each at the same time or right. consecutive. You, you finish one and then you start the other. If he were to sentence him to one year on each consecutive, so he, had, he was facing two years in prison, that might inspire him to try to cooperate. If he gets 30 days um, concurrent, then he might say, you know what, I'll, I'll be a martyr for the cause. It'll be good for my podcast and my uh, anti-establishment image, and I will come out of this even more powerful than before. So I think it it depends on the sentence he gets. And any indication, in your opinion, as to which way this judge will lean? No, this judge it was a Trump-appointed judge. So, you know, in theory, he's a law and order sort of guy. And this was a real snubbing of um, Congress and a uh, thumbing your nose at the rule of law, things that a Trump judge should find very objectionable legally and and you know sort of politically um but judges are unknowable in terms of how they sentence people until they sentence them well that's you know and one thing i'll say is this particular judge was instrumental in the case of Karam versus trump and we were concerned that um when we sued and to get back my press pass uh that how this would play out in court and this judge did not like how uh, the the uh, um, president treated the press, not me, but, you know, specifically. But I, so I don't know if that bodes well for uh, a long sentence, or it's an indicator that, uh, as you say, he'll be, uh, in this case, uh, upset with the snubbing and uh, of of you know the law. But it certainly is going to be. I think you're right. I think uh, when it boils down to it, that 
that uh, decision in October will, could mean quite a lot. John, your thought? Well, Bannon is really the puppet master in a lot of ways uh, behind Trump. And, and Brian, I remember when he was fired from his White House job, um, uh, other reporters, you know, saying, well, Bannon's out. I can't believe Bannon's out. And, you know, these <laughs> folks, a lot of these folks had covered the 2016 Trump campaign and they were, you know, on the bus and on the plane. And and I guess it was I, I, I can see from the perspective how um, it was easy to think that Bannon was out and, and to try to think about what the operation would be like without uh, Steve as the puppet master. But I remember you and I and, and a couple others saying, oh, no, 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 he's he's not really out. And in some ways, this is better for Trump and Bannon because, you know, there's certain rules and theoretically there are certain rules and guidelines in the White House that you have to follow guardrails, if you will. Well, now there's no guardrails that he can cameras <laughs> recording. Right. Devices. No, people think that Trump was the chaos agent, but the real chaos agent in this operation is Steve Bannon. He he's the brainchild of the chaos. And, you know, there's a CNN special report. I watched it last night. It's pretty good about Steve Bannon. Um, and and it goes in depth about just how much he is still pulling the strings in Trump world and how involved he was January 6th. So, you know, I recommend that to, to everyone out there to, to check that out. But, you know, if Bannon, if Bannon goes to, to prison for a year, you know, I, I don't I don't think I don't think that hurts his brand when he comes out. Like like Michael was saying, it'll be pretty good for his podcast and, and whatever he wants to do. And and he can martyr himself. And, you know, Trump, every time Trump steps on a rally stage or last night he, he gave a speech, you know, he martyrs himself and I'm doing this for you guys. And that's what Bannon will say. I did my time. I did it for the cause. I did it for the movement. And let's go save America, damn it. Yeah, right. I, I don't I, disagree. Let me just jump in. I don't disagree with that, John. As long as a sentence is relatively short, if, sure. if you if you have a year or more in prison, that is a very long time. It, That'll make you think. It it changes people. Look at look at the what was the fellow's name? Um, I'm just Michael blanking Cohen. on the name. In well, Cohen, but no, who was the 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 guy that Mueller prosecuted for? Um, the financial crimes and went to jail and he was the principal guy who was the Weissman prosecution. Oh, 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 I, I know who you're talking about. The yeah, name. I can see his face. But I can't <laughs> his name. Like that guy. Right. He was, he was a political consultant. He, he went into prison with uh, jet black hair and came out with uh, yes. bright gray hair. Uh, we haven't heard essentially a word from him since yeah. and 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 I think that I mean look I was a defense attorney for seven years, and you spend fifteen minutes in a federal prison even if it's a uh, you know so called uh, low level uh, security prison, it's a life changing event. So a year a year you know Bannon may come out a different uh, person. As I say, if it's short prison term, I agree with you, John, hundred percent. He's going to come out. Um, the the martyr released with a crowd as the prison door swings open, you know, it's out, out of a you know I James Hackney movie, right? <laughs> well, I I'll say that I agree with that. The the longer he is in, having spent a little time um, in in a in you know, I I only spent two weeks for trying to keep a 
confidential source, but that that is something that you just it, it does change you. I don't think there's any way around that. But I think that one of the things I look for in the change or one of the things I look for that will maybe uh, play into how long he sentenced is the simple fact that he has long said that he wants to tear everything down, that his goal is to tear it all down. Now, as he's facing uh, real prison time, he's saying he supports the Constitution. So I think that uh, yeah. he's, full of, he's full of shit, and I think we'll find out uh, how much the judge believes him going forward. And, and he would not dispute that he's full of shit. I mean, his mantra is flood the zone with shit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that's what shit monsters do. <laughs> Before we take a break, what do we, what wait, do we think? Wait, 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 one second, one second. Paul Manafort. That's yes. who I was going to remember. Yeah, we're talking about Paul. Oh, good old Paul Manafort. Who? Uh, so, and, so, and he went to jail for a while, and he's been a pretty quiet person ever since. That's true. Yep. That, that's true. And, and we won't go into the reasons why. Uh, <clears throat> I'll leave those to the imagination. So what do we expect in season two coming in September of the, uh, of, of the uh, uh, hearings? Michael, what would you like to see? What do you think needs to be shown? Well, for me, again, from a legal standpoint, that which interests me most, which hasn't gotten a lot of um, coverage, is I'd like to see the flow of money that that was uh, spent in the run-up to the January 6th and on January 6th and perhaps even the aftermath of, of January 6th. I'd like to see who financed this, how was it financed, uh, was it lawfully um, financed? Because I think there's, you know, like I was the former chief of the money laundering section in the Justice Department, so following the money was what I did as a, as a prosecutor for a number of years. And it interests me to see whether there's something behind the funding of this that, that implicates criminal law violations. So that, that interests me the most. I'll, I'll let it go to John to talk about whether he's interested in the more of the saga of the secret service. Yeah. Well, that's, that's well, I, I'd like to, that's one of the questions I had for uh, Friday for Corrine is, does the current president feel comfortable with the secret service uh, as it exists? But I, I think one of the things John, you and I have talked about uh, more importantly is direct linkage to Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, so what do you, what do you think we'll need to be looking for in season two of the, of the hearings? Exactly what you said. One thing that, that I still think they need to do, and I suspect they, they don't have it. I, I suspect we would have heard more about it in the season finale Thursday night is, you know, was Trump either talking directly to the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers leaders? Um, was he instructing Rudy Giuliani or Mark Meadows or Eastman or, um, you know, Sidney Powell or, or whoever? Um, was he communicating with them, you know, one degree away? I suspect we would have learned about that already. So um, I, I, I think they still need to draw those lines if they have them. I think they're still drilling down on evidence and, and wit new witnesses coming forward. Um, I, I, I said they're searching for those linkages, but I don't think they're, they're there yet. And that's to Michael's point about seditious conspiracy. Um, I'm no lawyer, but... It doesn't seem like they've made that case from the folks I've talked to, including Michael. But one thing I, I wanted to say about, you know, we're getting in this, the, the, nothing 
very few things can cancel August recess. These are members of Congress after all. So, you know, they're going to have it. Right. They're going to come back sometime in September. They'll have to get their ducks in a row. They'll have to meet privately. Um, then maybe late the first week they're back in September. This is congressional scheduling stuff, but maybe the second full week of September, they're ready to have a public hearing or two. Um, you know, we're we're getting really close to the, the heart of the midterm cycle. And I think they, they have to think hard about um, how close to the actual election data they want to go with this because it will start to feel more and more political um, as, as, as that day in November uh, gets closer and closer. So I think, I think they do need to think about that. Um, you know, it looks like the committee. Would probably... the do you think that would be the case if, if you, I mean, I guess maybe Kensinger's out. Right. And, and of course, Liz is not at this point projected to win. So uh, does it does it look I, I mean, I guess for the rest of the country, it would look political or at least for the Trumpers who will claim that it's political. But they've also yeah. claimed that this is a Democratic witch hunt. And yet they've dispelled that time and again by showing that it's basically. And I think there was one key phrase and and I, I both of you, I'd love your opinion on that. And, I, and I'm sorry I interrupted, but it brought this to mind. But there's one key phrase that Liz Cheney said at the end of uh, the hearings Thursday night when she said he kept looking. This this attack did not come from Donald Trump's political opponents. It came, quote, in a series of confessions from his own staff. So to me, I I think she was trying to dispel the, the idea that it's politics and I think she'll continue to do that. But I think more importantly, and Michael, you might know this better than I. I mean, you're the, you were the prosecutor. But the, I, the, the, those, the choosing of those specific words, a series of confessions, I don't think she's um, giving those people uh, a, a great deal of, of uh, praise for what they did. Because confessions seems like you were part of a criminal enterprise and, and uh, you only came forward when it when it came down to you might go under, you know, you under the bus or you on top of the bus. And that's been one of the <clears throat> biggest complaints all along is how you, you see this happen and you go, how the hell did this happen? Nobody stepped forward. So Michael, did, does those, uh, those particular words mean anything to you or not? Well, not, not from a, a legal standpoint um, in terms of, does it mean people will or will not have criminal liability? But it's an often used refrain in, in criminal trials, which is to say ah. that the people who we have brought forth on witness as witnesses were in there. They were part of the organization. They knew what was going on. And now they're here, if you will, to confess, to tell you what it was that was going on. And in some cases, many of these people were uh, enablers. You, you know, you mentioned, John mentioned that Liz Cheney voted with Trump administration between 83 and 93, 89 and 93% of, of, of the time on a whole host of pretty horrible policies to, to my um, politics. But I think that that's a, she's a good trial lawyer, apparently, um, Liz Cheney is turning out to be. I think so, yes. <laughs> and, and so I think what she's saying to the jury, America, essentially is, we brought forth witnesses who were there 
at the time and are confessing to not necessarily crime, but confessing to the circumstances that, that they saw firsthand. And so, America, you have good reason to believe the, the, the veracity of, of what they say. And by the way, those of you who have yet to come forward, why don't we look at these people as the example of, you know, the, the profile uh, in courage or integrity or something. And, and maybe it's your turn too, if we're going to ever get to the bottom of this. So, uh, John, I'll leave you with a last word before the break. And that, and you were talking when I rudely interrupted uh, about them being close to the midterms. And do you think that, um, do you think that with that thought in mind and with the fact what Liz said at uh, what uh, Representative Cheney said at the end of her speech Thursday night, do you think this uh, bodes well for the continuing of the, of season two? Well, I think they've tried to work both sides of this street on, you know, um, like like you're alluding to, like you're saying here, um, with this series of confessionals and trying to make it less political. You know, there, there was the Cheney statement that you're referring to, but also Adam Kinzinger had his own um, his yes. own spiel about how Donald Trump should be considered unfit for office. So they're trying to do both things at once. And it's interesting that they're using the two Republican members to do both things at once. And I do think that's effective. I, I think that's better than having, you know, Adam Schiff um, say one of these two things that, that the, the points that you and I are both making, you know, they're not letting Shifty Schiff do it. So then Trump can talk about his basement again and, and all that <laughs> stuff from impeachment time. So I do think it's effective. I do think Cheney has been highly effective. And I think, um, I think, uh, Congressman Kinzinger has has been very effective and very uh, persuasive um, uh, in, in the hearing. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think it does bode well for season two. I think we'll see a lot more Cheney and Kinzinger uh, when we reconvene in September. And on that thought, we'll take a short break and we'll be right back. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, JATQ Podcast. That's JATQ Podcast. Again, that's at JATQ Podcast. I were back and it still burns in the back of the throat. Uh, this, this is Just Ask a Question. I am your host, Brian Kerman. Just asking the press today about the week's uh, wonderful uh, events in the press. And when we left, uh, I guess, Michael, we left that one in, in the break, but you, you made a valuable point before we move on. Uh, other than the election, this committee is looking at uh, being, this committee will be cease to exist after the end of, uh, you know, this particular uh, edition of, of Congress. So unless it's turned into a standing committee, they have to be done, uh, what, by January, I believe. 
So everything would have to be cleaned up and finished by then. Uh, John, you're the uh, you you covered uh, Congress more than any of us, right? That's about. That's it. right. Yep. So they can uh, make it a standing committee, but Speaker, uh, we think McCarthy would have the ability uh, to kill it, you know, immediately uh, when he takes the gavel. When we expect him to take the gavel in early January, so yeah, they're racing up against the deadline. When they get back after the um, after the election, they're going to have a massive spending bill to try to keep the government open. They're going to have a lot to do in November. They're going to have the defense policy bill. It's always sitting there, um, you know, around Thanksgiving, early December, sometimes approaching Christmas. So they 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 will be distracted with with work they have to do legislatively. Um, but yeah, once once they leave for the holidays. You know, I, the most I would expect from this committee is maybe their final report. If maybe we'll get it before then. I, 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 yeah. Well, the real question for everyone is: Does it lead to? Uh, there's really only one question. Honestly. That's right. You're right. And that is: Is there going to? Are there going to be indictments? Does this lead? Does all this work help the Justice Department uh, in procure, procuring indictments against you know many of the people that have been mentioned as being ringleaders, up to and including Donald J. Trump? Can I just add one thing on this, which yeah. is that in some sense, this is helpful to the DOJ to, to gather all of, of this evidence. Uh, DOJ has to gather it itself uh, and introduce it into a grand jury if they're going to get an indictment. But on the other hand, it's also um, not as helpful to the Justice Department because you've got thousands of hours of depositions taken uh, where the lawyers asking the question aren't necessarily trained prosecutors, and so I, I, I would fear as a as a prosecutor, what all is contained in those thousands of hours of depositions, and how much cleanup do I have to do of that um, in order to um, tie up a, a, an indictable case? How much? Uh, exculpatory stuff in there, how much bad questions. I mean, we saw it even in some of the stuff that they presented. Some of the questions I thought to myself, that's not how I would ask. If I were a prosecutor, that's not how I would ask that right. question. I'd be much more targeted in it and less open-ended. But that's because Congress is doing it for one purpose and a prosecutor does it for another purpose. So it's helpful and well, that's it's helpful at the same time. That begs the question for me then, does, uh, is it possible that members of, all right, I'm sure we saw lots of stuff, but there's a lot of stuff that we didn't see that, and maybe those pointed questions came after, but is there any way to think that um, the DOJ helped guide some of those questions? I would be surprised if they had anybody um baked into that. Now, I'm sure there are people who were on the staff. I know there are people on the staff um, who, who were former federal prosecutors and even some members who were uh, federal law enforcement or state law enforcement. But as you can see, each witness was there and there was a, a, a room of different people and then people coming in on Zoom asking questions. That's not a really good way to organize uh, an interrogation of a, of a, of a witness uh, that you're seeking um, information relevant right. to a charging decision. So that all has to be sorted, sorted out. I'm sure you have to remember, you have to remember the committee has 
and I don't say this pejoratively, they have cherry picked from these thousands of hours, those parts of it, which they, they think summarize as best as they can summarize thousands of hours for the American um, public. But a prosecutor can't rely on the, the summary. They have to rely on what's in the, the full scope. I remember as a prosecutor, you'd have an FBI agent say, we have the person on the wire, meaning on a wiretap, saying the, the, that which we want them to say, the goods are in or the, the, the right. has arrived, something like that. As a prosecutor, an experienced prosecutor would never rely on an FBI agent's representation of what's in the wire. You have to listen to the wire because you right. have as a prosecutor a different set of eyes and ears to determine whether or not what is represented to you as true is in fact provably true. And so all this is to say it's complicated and all those people out there saying, what's taking Merrick Garland so long? Are people who haven't tried or attempted to prosecute cases as complex as this? Yeah, and that would be 99.9% .9 of the American public who think that they can pass judgment on what the Department of Justice is doing right now without having any idea what they're doing right now. That's what I always find. And that would include, and that's right, Brian, but, and that would also include 99.9% .9 of federal, former federal prosecutors who are on yes. TV, um, <laughs> who, who uh, the, the number of whom have had cases as complicated as this. This is, a, this is unique uh, in, in, in so many ways. Uh, former federal prosecutors who will say, well, I was an organized crime prosecutor, and if, if they said this to my uh, subject, uh, he would be indicted in five minutes. And I think to myself, yeah, fine. If, if Don Corleone says, make him an offer he can't refuse, it's very different than if the president of the United States says to the head of the FBI, you know, try to go easy on him. Those are those are not comparable. You know, and if you look at it through the the eyes of Don Corleone prosecutors, it doesn't it doesn't add up. Anyway, yeah, so, I, and I, mean that, I don't mean that in respect of any particular TV prosecutor. I'm just saying. I know this is a hard case. Well, yeah, it is a hard case, and I think we're jumping. Everyone who's jumping out going, why hasn't Merrick Garland prosecuted yet? I think just I, I'll you know defer to you, but I have the same feeling. It's like you haven't a clue as to what's going on. What do you right. mean he hasn't prosecuted yet? Hell, I, we don't know. We, we do know that he's interested because, as you said, there is a grand jury in, uh, somewhere and panel. They have yanked Jeffrey Clark out in his undies into his front yard and, and, and the – I, I so there's obviously something going on. Uh, we haven't seen many of the headlines yet, but in my dealings with federal prosecutors over the years, you rarely they are, are very good about neither confirming or denying the existence of an investigation, and will not comment until such time as there is you know paperwork or or something to be filed. Now that doesn't mean that they won't talk to us off the record or for background. So that we know something is going on. And that much we do know. We know there's something going on. I don't think we're going to see much until there actually is. And then I think it will come fast and furiously when it does. That's We shall see. Yeah, we shall see. So moving on, the rehabilitation of former Trump White House aides. There's, <laughs> this has been an ongoing 
uh, event, I, I turn on TV and I look at some of the people on TV trying to give us sober, reflective thoughts like, I don't know, Mick Mulvaney, the used car salesman. And I'm just curious as to exactly why, why are we rehabilitating these people? And I know I'll start with you on that one, John. Your, your thoughts? <laughs> I'm, I'm, as he scratches and furrows his brow. Um, I'm not sure, except, you know, I, I, I guess it's to get your own insight right there on your panel or on your split screen. And, you know, instead of asking a strategist who, who didn't have anything to do with the Trump White House because, you know, they weren't from the MAGA part of the party, you know, you, then you ask Mick Mulvaney uh, or Alyssa Farah. Um, Stephanie Grisham has come all the way back. Rebrand. What was that? She says she can't rebrand. And yeah, she says she can't rebrand, that this is going to follow her. She was, of course, press secretary, communications director. Uh, she was comms director for the first lady, Melania Trump, as well. Um, and I think I think Stephanie's right. She's not going to outrun this. Um, I'm not I sure. I'd say good because she's the one who right. put my press pass. <laughs> that's right. that's the only she never had one single briefing, not one in a year. The right. only thing she did was pull my press pass and I had to fight, I had to sue and win three times in court to keep it. But, and I think on her gravestone, it will say <laughs> pull, pull Karam's press pass as, you know, as, a, as a mark. I think of, it will. Yeah, maybe on the on the reverse side, like a baseball yeah. card. You flip it. Yeah. Uh, for for the younger audience, baseball cards used to be a thing that we looked at about <laughs> baseball players. But um, yeah, listen, a lot of these folks stayed. Um, they stayed the whole time. Uh, some of them came in, you know, midstream, midterm. Some of them came in after the first year. The first year was really chaotic. Then they staffed up a bit, brought in some some more professional type folks. So. They stayed until January 6th, and that was the final straw. And we have to remember, they stayed through all the xenophobia stuff at the rallies, all the racist tweets, all the, the dog whistles, uh, the calls to violence at, at rallies and in tweets and, and other venues, all, all the stuff that Trump did and pushed and, and some of the immigration policies that even many in his own party weren't comfortable with. Um, they stayed through all of that, and and I I understand why the committee's doing it. They feel they have to do it, um, you know, some level of real rehabilitation and painting these folks as brave. And certainly, young Cassidy Hutchinson, I don't think I could have sat there at 25 or 26 and and you know have have given that that kind of powerful testimony. So they do get some credit, but it's important to remember that they stayed through all of it. And January 6 was their breaking point, but they they. They endorsed all of it. They defended all of it. Our friend Judd Deere, who was deputy press secretary, Judd was very professional. I never thought, as you said recently, Brian, on here, um, I never felt that Judd was misleading me or lying to me. Um, I felt like he was being a straight shooter to the extent that anyone could be because, you, you know, they didn't know where Trump might go on a policy question or I was asking a lot of questions about Congress. They didn't know. But Judd was giving me his best um, his best assessment from being in the room with Trump and, and conversations with others. So, you know, Judd was one of the good ones, but we have to remember, and, and I have respect for Judd and, and his testimony has, I think, shown that, that he was professional and, and tried to be a straight shooter. But we have to remind ourselves, even Judd stayed and Judd stayed until the very end. Yes. 
until yeah. Well, and is there anything? And, and Michael, I'll, I'll leave this. I'll ask you this question. There were, the, you know, um, when asked why some of these people stayed, particularly you know the head of justice and his attorney Cipollone, I think was one of them. He said, "Well, I thought about those two weeks and what? Who would he have replaced me with had I left? Is there any validation to that?" Sure. Well, that's the the age old test. I was in the Justice Department uh, working for Bill Weld, who was the Assistant Attorney General for the the Criminal Division, when Ed Meese was the United States uh, Attorney General, and Meese was challenged ethically, um, at least by two independent counsel investigations of him. And Weld said, you know what, enough's enough. And he quit saying, I can't work in this um, environment. And that was his way of, of viewing it. In the Saturday Night Massacre, when Elliot Richardson and, and the Deputy Attorney General both resigned in the face of the firing of Archibald Cox, the, the, the solicitor general stayed and he stayed at the request of the um, attorney general and deputy attorney general saying, we need somebody here to you know, essentially keep the train on the tracks to the extent possible. Now it, it hurt him reputationally and he didn't make it onto the Supreme Court in part as a, as a consequence of it. But I think there is for each individual, the decision that they have to make, whether they quit or stay. I thought, for example, when um, um, many of the, the many, many of the cabinet quit at the very end, instead of facing the possibility of exercising their 25th Amendment powers, I, I thought that they sort of ran away from having to make that decision, whereas um, some of them stayed, the labor secretary stayed saying, I felt it was you know, important that someone like me, as conservative as he was, you know, um, stay to, to, to make sure that the, 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 the rails you know, stay up. So right. I don't think there's a right or a wrong choice. And I don't know, you know everyone thinks of themselves as being courageous and were I there, I would would have housed Jews in my attic too. But the number of people who were righteous was so small. Um, So you think of yourself as having much more courage after the fact when (laughs) when there's nothing on the line than uh, in in real time. So I don't don't pass judgment on people who decided to stay or, or, or decided to leave. But in Cipollone's case, I think his testimony was was pretty compelling that he was very fearful when you saw the Jeffrey Clark um, scenario play out where they were going to throw out uh, serious lawyers and put Clark in to perpetrate this fraud. Cipollone says, I've got to stick around here. Someone has got to protect, you know, the Constitution from this these unconstitutional acts. So, you know, it is it's it's an individual determination and, uh, you know, we have to be careful about Passing judgment under the, uh, you know, in looking back from our protected uh, living rooms, if you will. Like Josh Hawley, from the protection of the, uh, 
the police line. We're well behind it. We can appear very like we have all the <laughs> in the world. One thing I would add, though, what's interesting is looking at some of the Watergate folks, um, what did they do afterward is sometimes instructive. So you take like Chuck Colson, who was a pretty bad actor during uh, the Watergate period. Yeah. And then he becomes an evangelical minister and he does a lot of good work. John Dean comes out, he writes a lot of books. He does a lot of ethics training around the country, talking to lawyers about the importance of ethics. Um, so the question I always have is, what did you do? What did you learn from this? And how did you act thereafter? Did you, you know, did, is Cassidy Hutchinson or, or, or Sarah Matthews or any of these people, they gonna, are they going to jump on the DeSantis um, bandwagon now and, 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 you know, yeah, he's, a, he's a, a less volatile version of Trump, but he's still a Trumpist um, policy. You know, so what are they going to do to me is what I like to look at. What, what did they learn from this experience? That will be that will be something for future generations to unfold, or at least the next over the next decade or so, we'll have to look at that and see how that unfolds. I guess the, that takes me up to the media report card. <laughs> how do you think we did this week, John? How do you think the media did in reporting everything that went on? I, you know, uh, give my standard C, uh, B minus. Uh, I. A lot of the stories that I saw um, the night of, the day after uh, the Jan 6 uh, primetime hearing, they're cast in a way almost um, like, as if it's inevitable that, that Trump won't make a political comeback and be pre- or be president again. Or, um, you know, it, it kind of implies that, that he's automatically in legal trouble. And, you know, I think we need to take a step back. And um, it feels sometimes like, we're rooting for that in the media. And again, if, if you can prove he did the time or did the crime, you know, just like everyone else, I think you should do the, do the time. So. Yes. I uh, saw Beretta as a kid too. Don't do the crime. You can't do. (laughs) And another uh, rather egregious thing I saw. um, I do like to spend a little time with Fox news just to see (laughs) and hear what they're putting out there. Uh, Lunchtime, I believe it was Wednesday. Uh, one of the, I think it was the outnumbered show. They led off talking about a censorship law and just, you know, speaking in their usual dire, you know, this is it, you know, free speech is over, First Amendment, burn it down. Um, they're coming for us, this and that. And I couldn't see from where I was sitting, uh, enjoying my lunch for at least a few minutes. And I couldn't see the end of the Chiron. Well, and I, I talked, I told Brian about this the other day that. I figured something had passed maybe a state house committee in California or New York. And as they often do, they were running with it. Well, when I leaned over and saw the rest of the Chiron, it said in Japan. So here they were just an, it was completely irresponsible, you know, trying to trying to scare people here in America that just because Japan adopted some law. And after I looked it up, by the way, Fox, the Fox host, and Miss McEnany was the host that day. Um, didn't explain it correctly. <laughs> so well, there's a shock. While also mischaracterizing what what actually passed in Japan. So I just thought that was 
to me, that was the most egregious uh, 15 minutes of television news this week. Michael, what do you think we how we did this week? Well, I think that the the media is trying to do a good job in explaining what we're seeing in the January 6th hearings. I, I, I don't think they're covering it like a baseball game, which is often a criticism I have of, you know, who's winning and who's losing um, and what inning are we in? And the Nats are losing. Do we, do we need a Hail Mary pass? You know, all of that sort of stuff I always makes me a little bit crazy. I think, you know, go to ESPN, for goodness sakes, if this is how you want to view, view things. And, um, but I think that they've avoided that um, largely. And I, and I think that they're trying to say um, sort of, they're try, if you will, the cable stations that I watch, I think are trying, they're moving a little bit more toward PBS uh, coverage where I think Judy Woodruff says, we've just completed the hearing. Let's recount what we just heard um, and sort of like give us that summary um, without asking and who's up and who's down and, you know, the like. And so I thought that they, they have moved a little bit more in that direction. And I think that that's, that's only good. I, I, I think that it would be good for everybody if all the cable stations reverted back a little bit to what CNN was at its outset, you know, which was covering the news and being less of an opinionist. Yes. This is not a criticism of CNN. That's who I watch yeah. than anybody else. But there's been a tendency in the media generally to become opinionists rather than covers um, of fact. Remember, when we were kids, you had um, Walter Cronkite sort of telling us the news. And then at the end, they would say, and here is Eric Severide, and he will give you his opinion. Um, right. and, it, and it was a segment that was called opinion, and it was by Eric Severide, and we understood that this was Eric Severide's opinion. He's entitled to his opinion, but Walter Cronkite was the guy who told us the news. There's been more of a, a um, blending of those things, and you couldn't, it's not as easy to tell what's news and what's opinion as it used to be, and so I'm glad to see that they're separating a little bit more the opinion from the news, and I think that's, that's, that's good for the media and good for the country. Whether it happens on all the stations remains to be great. I heard, I heard on the, I heard on uh, whether, I think it was like Meet the Press, somebody, they were saying that the Murdochs have um, moved away from, from Trump. Is, is that right? Yes, so, that's true. Yeah. They, I, I think they're, they're now uh, cozying up to DeSantis. A, right. a, a less, uh, a, <laughs> how do you put that? A less egregious uh, authoritarian mm -hmm. But but I'll I'll say this week I'll, I'll I think we covered the um, the play by play or the blow by blow I think you're both right I think we did a much better job of these are the facts and this is what happened this week and I was glad to see that but I don't think we've done a very good job in two counts and one is I don't think we've explained really very well at all the length that it takes for the DOJ to uh, take to to bring about a case. And so when people are jumping out going, why had Merrick Garland done this or why had Merrick Garland done that? 
walking people through what it takes, and maybe that's because we're not very good at understanding it ourselves. I've seen too many pundits say, yeah, he needs to come out now and do what he's got to do. I think that was an egregious mistake. We need to explain that a little bit better. And then one of the things that I think was least covered this week and of greatest potential harm to the U.S. was the investigation into the Secret Service and the fact that there are Secret Service agents who erased texts asked for by the January 6th Commission uh, in the hearing. And we were, um, I was in the briefing room, not Thursday when it was announced that uh, Biden had uh, uh, COVID, but Friday the next day. And every single question was about that. And the question I want answered, still want answered is, does the President of the United States have faith in the Secret Service? And why is uh, uh, Tony Ornato and Don, uh, I'm sorry, Tony Ornato still have his, why is he still uh, employed? Does he feel comfortable and safe with him there? I think those are things that we didn't report on real well this week. And I think that uh, going forward, the Secret Service story is going to be a much larger story, or or should be than we've than we've deemed it so thus far. The uh, coverage of uh, Biden's COVID, <clears throat> I think we've uh, we've just got lost in the nuance. It's like teaching kids to tie their shoes. It's like we have to go through every bit of it. And you know, like you were saying earlier, John, just tell us what his blood oxygen level is. Is he going to be safe? Moving on. You know, I don't. I, don't, I think we spent way too much time worried about that. And uh, we spent far less time when Trump came out and told us to inject bleach. So I, I, you know, that's, that was horrible. So I think moving forward, it'll be interesting to see how we deal with those issues going forward. So that leads me to bold predictions for the coming week. Can I ask you before we get to bold predictions, one question, because as you guys cover the news much, watch the news much more than I do. Has there been any coverage of the uh, arrest and prospective extradition of Rafael Quintero, the head of the Guadalajara um, cartel, who was behind the murder torture of Enrique Camarena, the DEA. Um, they've been looking for this guy since 1985, and they finally captured him. Um, you know, I'll tell you this much, Michael. I, I watched it because... I'm the guy who broke that story in 1985. I was I was at a local paper in Laredo, Texas. I was in a uh, the police chief's office, and as John, you can attest, a lot of reporters have the ability to read things written upside down. If we if we see it, we'll read it. And there was a four eyes only uh, document on his desk, and I always, for years later, th- thought that he meant me to see it, uh, announcing that they were searching that they had a DEA agent missing. And that was the first story that was broken on it. And I followed, have followed that religiously since. And no, I don't think there's been enough done on that. But I don't think there's been enough done on how the U.S. created the drug problem anyway. But John, I'll leave that to you. You think there's been enough coverage? Uh, probably not. But, um, you know, in, in this age of shrinking newsrooms, I'm not surprised. Yeah, there's a, there's a whole show we could do on that. So let's... <laughs> Uh, but moving forward, so uh, bold predictions for the coming week. We'll we'll let uh, we'll let John have the first whack at that. What do you think we'll be looking at this this week? Yeah, I want to hear more about the Secret Service uh, story and you know how much is how much of that data or the text messages might be recoverable. 
Um, will we start to see any um, any will we see any more subpoenas or, or anything out of Georgia? That's something, Brian, that you brought up a couple of times. Uh, their investigation down there. Uh, will we see any any more movement at the federal level? Uh, any search warrants or 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 anything? And and will the uh, January sixth committee subpoena Jenny Thomas, of course, conservative That's- activist who also happens to be married to a gentleman named Clarence Thomas. Of course, he's a Supreme Court justice. Who? Yeah, that could get interesting. And um, yeah, well, and I'll be watching the Hill closely. Democrats have uh, a chance to, to start um, getting some wins before the midterms. Uh, maybe they can pass this uh, a smaller version of this China competition bill focused on the U.S. semiconductor industry. Maybe they'll clear that Tuesday or Wednesday. And then, you know, they're going to try to pass a prescription drug bill, uh, some Medicare changes. Those would be big wins for Democrats if they can, you know, if they can if, if they can avoid their two left feet and, and get some stuff passed, they might be able to hold the Senate. They might have more of of a policy foundation to run on. And, um, you know, they better get with it because the clock's ticking. Yeah. Good point. Michael, going forward, what do you well, think we'll see this well, I, I think that we're going to see the melting of some Republican Senate candidates, that we've got a couple of them out there in Georgia and um, Arizona and, and Pennsylvania, and we'll see what else. But I, I think some of the candidates that are running are going to be seen for what they are. And um, I think that when you think of the Democrats' chances of holding the Senate, watching how those, at least those three, um, I guess, perform in, 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 the, in the coming months, for me, will, will be interesting. Because, you know, of course, if the Democrats retain the Senate, even if they lose the House, while well, they have to deal with Judiciary um, Chairman um, Jim Jordan and Speaker Scalise or whatever, and it'll be... Um, it'll be, you know, it'll be revenge, the revenge tour. Um, If they can retain the Senate, that allows them still to get their appointments to the judiciary um, through judges and, uh, and the like. And I think that in some sense, in the long term, that's as important as anything else um, for those who support the democratic uh, agenda. So, that's sort of where I have my eyes, and I'm looking to see how how um, Dr. Oz and, and Herschel Walker and, and a few other of these unqualified candidates um, hold up under the campaign trail. Yeah, that would be. It sounds like Michael think Herschel is going to fumble this one away. Yeah. Uh, hey, you hey, know, hey, I, I was. I was, I was sure. Go ahead. No, I was thinking. This will be the third show I think that we've done together, and we had a a, a NASCAR um, mention in, in show one. I forget what the sport was in in show two. Was it WWE or no, no? And, yeah. and, now, and now we're on to football. So John is uh, batting a thousand uh, <laughs> in terms of keeping the sports um, going, which I think is a good thing. Well, and as much as we would see Herschel Walker fumble. I'm also sure we'll see Josh Hawley run. <laughs> when, when is he up for re-election? Is he up? I don't um, know, but he'll be running. That's <laughs> right. 
to the yeah, not this time. He's not up this cycle. No, he's not up this cycle. I think he's up four, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, but I, I, my bold prediction, I think that um, Liz Cheney was right. The dam has begun to break. And I think in the next week we're going to find uh, even more shocking uh, even more shocking testimony will be coming forward. And I think that the, the dam beginning to break also means that um, the Democrats may have a, an opening window to hold on to the House uh, if they take advantage of it. But I think that, as we've all said, the Democrats are are nothing if not consistent in their ability to snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory. And it is amazing to me that we're sitting here talking about all this stuff that the Republicans have done, and they're still likely to take over the House. <laughs> that's with all that's going on. So I, I think this week, I you know, I gave up, I guess, bold predictions. Uh, you know, I, I, I won't even tell you who I think is going to win the Big Ten in football this year. But I, I, you know, I'm, I'm giving up. Is there experience. still is there still a Big Ten? I thought it was. Yeah. Oh, it's a real Big Ten now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take Ohio State. I, yeah, well, you know, there's a solid bat, <laughs> or Michigan. Uh, Please but, not Michigan. Please. Yeah, <laughs> let's not go there. So anyway, with that thought, look, guys, thanks for joining us. We'll uh, do it again. The name of the show is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Kieran. Thanks for joining us, and we'll catch you next time. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast.